You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee and I'm an associate digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I am pleased to be joined today with the great Mark Galley. Huh, good to be back. <laughs> Glad to hear it in my absence. You now think I'm great. That's a good thing. I'm happy that be, you're back. I should be gone more often. Wow. Just so that you can get absence <laughs> so makes the heart grow fonder. Exactly. So, Mark, today is actually going to be our listener appreciation episode, which I think works for the time of the year that we are in. Well, it not only works, it's it's right and true and a good thing to do because we really do appreciate our listeners. Absolutely. And I can't say how affirming it feels to read some of these comments that people leave and you feel like, man, am am I actually doing work that I really believe in? They seem to think so. (laughs) And this is a reminder to anyone who wants to comment on the podcast or anything we do editorially. We do appreciate uh, constructive criticism because it helps us become better journalists. But uh, we also like to be told what we're doing right. So if you want to throw those in there once in a while, we're (laughs) human beings that like to feel like we're doing good in the world. And anytime we happen to do that, if you could mention it, we love it. We just eat it up. Flattery gets gets you a long credit in our view. All right. So I'm glad that everyone has it noted that Mark likes syncophantic behavior. (laughs) Exactly. That's how I get things done around here, guys. All right. So as many of you are aware, we have been asking you to leave reviews for us over the past couple of weeks. And thank you to everyone who's gone on to Apple Podcasts and left us these reviews. We also mentioned that if folks included a question that was appropriate in nature, we would then do our best to try to answer it. So we got a bunch of different questions from people today. Some of you guys had questions that would probably make their own quick to listen episode, and we will not be giving you a quick to listen episode response length because this podcast needs to be around normal time. But we will take some time to try to be thoughtful in how we answer all of these, even the ones that are on the sillier end, I think. So yeah, we ready to go, Mark? I'm ready. The first question I'm actually going to read is kind of my summary of two questions that were similar in nature. And these questions were left by C.R. Ockert and R.A. Price. And my reading of both of these questions is that they're asking for fellow Christians who they feel don't necessarily believe the truth or believe what's being reported by the mainstream media and either believe a lie unknowingly or believe something, believe that the mainstream media is misleading them. How do we present them with the truth when they seem closed off by that? Mark, what do you, what are your thoughts? Well, first, I'd like to uh, broaden the question in the sense that this is not a new problem, and it's not a problem that's reserved just for brothers and sisters in Christ, although it has a particular meaning there because of our relationship with them in Christ. I remember I went to uh, Doha for a conference on uh, U.S. Muslim relations, and I was invited into a a Muslim home to have dinner with a, a fa- extended family, and I had a sit-down, as is the custom of that country, uh, with a group of men before the dinner, and we were talking about various and sundry subjects, and they mentioned that they thought George Bush, he was the president at the time, was interested in forcing Christianity on the Middle East, that that was part of his foreign policy. And I replied, well, it doesn't quite work that way in the U.S. as it does in other countries. The, the, the president's personal religious faith, generally, he's not interested in promulgating that. He might have devout feelings or devout beliefs, but he's really, his interests in the Middle East are not, have nothing to do with religion, actually. It doesn't work that way in the U.S. I understand it works that way in other countries, but it doesn't work that way in the U.S. And they just stared back at me and said, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and the conversation at that point 
on that subject ended because there was no getting past the fact that they just wouldn't believe me based on my experience as an American citizen for, at the time, 40-some years. So this is something that we run into in all sorts of quarters of people who just don't want to believe the facts of the matter. And our, really, our only choices are to stay in relationship with them and hopefully over time show them that it actually the, the, the things we're talking about actually are grounded in facts uh, that they, ought, they need to consider. Or it might be if the relationship has become really hostile and aggravated, we might have to apply the biblical teaching about shaking the dust off our feet. It just depends. But when people are in that situation, uh, it, you, pushing the issue in a direct sort of way is generally the worst way to go about it. It's just not. It's just not going to. It's not going to change anybody. Once you've established that they do not believe what you, but they're wrong, Mark. <laughs> they may be wrong, but once we've established that you're not, you don't see things the same way, and they are not going to move. At least in that conversation, you have to think of a long-term strategy how you're going to deal with it. I have two suggestions. The first suggestion is that I think it it would be helpful to do a little bit of homework ahead of time about times when. CNN or the Washington Post, for instance, have been wrong on facts so that you can concede up front that there have been times when, yes, it's true, mainstream publications have gotten things wrong. I, I find that when one person introduces doubt into a conversation, oftentimes it lets the other person often admit their own questions or reservations on something. Sometimes, yes, it's true. Someone seizes upon it and right. <laughs> just uses it to clobber you. But I have oftentimes seen that like, if you are able to, to say one thing, sometimes someone is able to meet you there. And also, I think it's something that you just don't want to be caught off guard. It's true, right? Like mainstream publications have had difficult times sporadically. It is not, it's not something that is consistently happening, but you don't want to be caught off guard with that. That's a good point. I mean, about the vulnerability. I appreciate that. Yep. The other thing that I would suggest for people is asking questions. I personally think that for many people, this distrust in what the mainstream media comes is a symptom of something else that's going on. Maybe it's not always the case, but I, I, that's where I'm going to fall. That's going to be my default posture. So I would be trying to get to the root problem as much as possible. So maybe the root problem is that there's a frustration in how they've traditionally covered Christians, for instance, or there's a sense that these publications are used to constantly refute the things that they believe. And so they feel like it's been turned into or it's been weaponized in some way. So I, I ask a lot of questions. And I also think that when it comes to these types of things, it's all about relationships and relationships take time to change people's minds. There's been years and years and years of particular groups bashing the mainstream media. And it's unreasonable to think that somehow you would just be able to flip a switch overnight and that person would somehow believe a news source. I also think it's helpful. We know, Mark, because you and I read many mainstream publications, that they often feature Christian writers. And so I do think it's important to you know, share those articles, too, to remind them that there's a lot of different beliefs. But there are mainstream evangelical ones that will get published there. I think the point about relationships is good because people who refuse to believe in this distant organization called the Washington Post or the U.S. government or whoever they're distrusting, they're, not, they're more likely to start trusting you than they are to trust them. And so if uh, you come in kind of heavy-handed and say, well, these are the facts that you have to kind of submit to, you're not, you're not likely to get a hearing. But if in the course of the conversation you can say something as simple as, well, I, I don't know that I see it that way, uh, and here's why I don't see it that way. Now all of a sudden the conversation is about partly, it's now the relationship. 
and it's partly my trustworthiness. And if I show myself trustworthy in other aspects of the conversation, then they're more likely to consider my point of view in the area that we have a dispute about. Mm -hmm. And also, I think you can maybe remind them when whatever outlet they feel angry towards has reported on things that made you personally mad, like the news itself made you personally mad and how you were able to kind of say, well, it, 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 they've, they've angered both sides, in other words. Yeah. All right. I hope that solves everybody's problem, <laughs> especially this week on Thanksgiving. If nothing else, this is how Morgan and I try to deal with it. So if you find it helpful, great. <laughs> and if you have other suggestions, I think this is something that is really important for all of us to think through right now because we definitely need some different strategies when it comes to trying to talk to people. It probably doesn't lives. hurt for us to remind ourselves of times when we found something unbelievable Yes. And we had a friend come alongside us and encourage us to think freshly and differently about something. And uh, if we can have that type of patience with others as they have had with us, that helps the whole tone of the conversation as well. And to the extent that you can introduce the concept of confirmation bias without it feeling like a condescending explanation of something, I think that is, to me always a gift to bring to people and just reminding them that it's an incredibly human thing to feel confirmation bias when it comes to something and it afflicts everybody. All right. So we have a question from Anwan. And Anwan, I hope I'm saying your name correctly. So I'm sorry if I'm not. So Anwan writes, what should Christians do about white supremacy? And this is how he defines it. Political, cultural, and economic belief that social construct of whiteness is superior to all other races and should therefore rule and be served by black people. Mark, you have some thoughts on this. A couple comments. One is, I think we ought to remind ourselves that white supremacy is a subset of something that's bigger than that. And that is uh, what you might call majority supremacy. That is to say, any majority culture, by its very nature, is going to think itself superior to minority cultures. People who are in a majority culture are proud of their culture and the way they think about things. So this is not really, uh, unfortunately, when we start talking about it as whiteness, we kind of make it into a racial issue. And it's really, it seems to me, it's, a it's the problem of the majority uh, and that this is a perennial human problem of the majority thinking it's superior to, to minorities. I think that might be the, the beginning point. Now, the way it takes expression in America, it often happens, happens to have a racial overtones. But there's all sorts of ways in which each of us thinks of ourselves as superior to other people. Uh, and a way to kind of begin the conversation is not to assume that there are people out there who believe in white supremacy and I don't have that problem. It's to recognize how prejudice infects every one of us in all sorts of ways, even when we mentally repudiate it. So I'm a person who's been raised in a culture that says prejudice is a terrible thing. And I agree with that 120%. And I have all these prejudices that I don't know what to do with. They won't go away. And some of them are self-contradictory. So take the prejudice I have about people who are overweight. I'm overweight. Been overweight for decades. I see someone who's overweight. My immediate reaction to them is negative. What in the heck is going on with that? So the goal is not to get rid of, uh, well, the ultimate goal might be to get rid of my prejudice, my feelings Shouldn't of that supremacy. Be the that should be the ultimate goal. But the realistic goal is that's never going to happen, really, in this life. The goal is, can I live a life that doesn't actually act out on those, on those prejudices? Can I enter in a situation knowing that I'm looking at a person, the way they're dressed, the color of their skin, their gender, the way they talk, makes me think negatively about them. Immediately makes me feel negative. It's just a reaction. It, it's beyond my control. My choice at that point is not to say... Mark, you've got to change how you're feeling. I, yeah, Mark should change how he's feeling, but that's going to take decades. The better thing is to say, okay, I recognize that that's what's going on, so how should I act in this situation? And so it's the acting out 
that's the important thing, not the actual prejudice in day-to-day life that actually seems to me to make the difference. I don't know if that answers the question, but at least it gets at a, a deeper question that has to be thought about first, it seems to me. Mark, I know we've talked about this multiple times on the show, but what do you do when you actually are not aware that you have those prejudices? And here you are in a position where people look up to you and you create policy and you maybe don't even know that the prejudices are affecting you. Every one of us do that. I mean, that's one, exactly, of, the, that's but... one of the great disturbing things about marriage is your spouse tends to point out... <laughs> all the areas in which you're prejudiced and biased and are not thinking clearly. So, I mean, one of the things, one of your goals as a Christian is to become more and more aware of those. Uh, But what happens over a period of time, though, is you realize that they are, it's like a multi-headed monster. You, You realize that they're all over the place. And so it isn't a surprise when people come up to me and say, Mark, do you realize you have a, a blind spot about X? I say, I didn't realize that, but it certainly doesn't surprise me that I would have a blind spot. I've lived 65 years now, and I've discovered every so often I have these blind spots. It just seems to be part of my nature. And at the, it's at that point that I try to say, okay, I'm aware. Now I'm aware of it. And now I'll see, I'll see how I need to respond to that. I, I get worried. So one one way that you decided to tackle this question is by talking about how it exists on a personal level. And I know that that's something that we care a lot about here at CT. I think that we also go often go one step further and we talk about how a particular disposition affects things on an institutional level. And that's where I find this all more challenging, especially when it comes to institutional blind spots. As we know, institutions often outlast people themselves. And so the effect that they can have on culture and society at large can be far more damaging or, you know, beneficial than when it's just one person that's doing those things. And when it comes to how should Christians address white supremacy, white supremacy, I think that's where I would challenge Christians to be trying to American Christians, obviously, in particular, to be trying to do the work that challenges this. And so the extent to which institutions may be isolated or in a homogenous group of people that are all kind of being able to be aware, I guess, of the same strengths and weaknesses of it. You don't really know if your institution is flourishing or not at large because you're not necessarily asking a wider group of everyone. So obviously here at CT, I don't think we're saying everyone in America has to be down with what we're doing here, but we are really trying to care about how other Christians, specifically evangelicals, view the work that we do within the con, you know, within what our own mission is, right? And so we have this mission of beautiful orthodoxy. And it's really important for us to hear other Christians who also care about beautiful orthodoxy and to ask them, where are we succeeding in our mission and where are we failing and where are our blind spots and making sure that we're not just asking the same crowd all the time about that. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I do agree with the structural, uh, although I don't, sometimes I don't know what we mean by that phrase. I mean, we use, we throw it around and I don't know that we've actually come down and defined it, but it is certainly true that groups as a whole tend to have attitudes that they reinforce. But again, I I don't know that we're ever going to change that group's inner instincts and feelings. I mean, basically any group, any majority group is going to feel it's superior to others. It just, that's just the way human nature is. The question is, can it be aware that it feels that way and can it learn to act in ways that doesn't exacerbate that problem? Yeah. True. I, I will say, though, that I do think that there are times when institutions are actually deserving of being burned to the ground and that the mission that they have is toxic and it perpetuates attitudes, beliefs, ways of being in the world that we do not want perpetuated. So give me an example of an institution that would need to be burned down. So I think that it is very hard for me to defend 
most organizations that have suffered, you know, that have had like severe sex abuse cover ups would be one of them. Um, and I think most institutions that really have not come to terms with a lot of their beliefs around race and have not really done careful thinking about that. It's hard for me to say that they should continue t- to hire and bring in people and spread this mission if they haven't been honest with themselves about what their what the legacy of their organization's past is on that. I think it, we're particularly in a time when it's very hard for people who are not white and who consider themselves Christians to to look at these institutions that have not had this type of honest reckoning and say like, this is a movement that I care about and wanted to be a part of when they don't necessarily see repentance there and when they don't see self-awareness there and an attempt that like we must do better because the gospel is at stake here. So just so you're not misunderstood, you're not saying the Catholic Church should be burnt down because of their sex abuse scandal back in the day. I do think that there were particular dioceses that probably needed to be burned to the ground. Huh. I mean, the, spoken the, like a revolutionary. I, I just say that because the level of corruption in some of these places made it clear that it was at odds with what the church was going on, you know, with what the church even stood for. Right. And the idea that we would decide that we needed to keep these institutions alive when there were so many levels of people enabling other people and people looking the other way. I guess I would just say, like, it, it's actually time to bring in all fresh people and say, like, I don't know. It made me so sad to think about everyone who lost their faith over this um, because they felt so disposable from the church and so pushed out of it. And to, yeah, to try to keep things with the people. Obviously, Christ can redeem everything, but I do think that sometimes Christ also does destroy things, <laughs> too. Right. Okay. All right. Okay, so we have another question from Liam Downey. Liam Downey asks if we see a schism on the horizon when it comes to politicalization and division in evangelicalism. Liam also asks, can we find a balance of grace and truth in order to get back on mission? Liam, FYI, there are some words in here like mission that I think we could spend a whole episode again defining and talking about that, but we will still try to take a stab at answering your question. Yeah, I mean, we talked about uh, Lecrae's announcement about leaving evangelicalism uh, in a recent episode. And I think I mentioned at that point that I do get the point that evangelicals of various stripes at some point may feel the need to, in a sense, go into a trial separation or even divorce evangelicalism because of their frustration. And this isn't just a racial issue. I mean, when I go to uh, conferences of the uh, Evangelical Environmental Network, I hear the same frustration with mainstream evangelicalism as I hear from other quarters, meaning that mainstream evangelical church doesn't care about the environment, doesn't care about creation care. And I'm just, it's just really frustrating to me. You get that about people who are into sex trafficking or world hunger. Uh, They just get really frustrated that mainstream evangelical churches don't take their cause with utmost uh, the seriousness and compassion and dedication that they do it, uh, engage it with, and it makes them want to just throw up their hands and leave evangelicalism. So there's a part of me that says, I get it, and you can only fight so many battles. And if you really feel like trying to convince other evangelicals of the importance of your cause is not, you're not, not making the progress you want, you might have other battles you want to spend your energy on, and I bless you and say, that's great. The other thing, of course, is to remember is that when we talk about mainstream evangelicals, they are just people, uh, and they are waking up in the morning and trying to figure out how they're going to make ends meet at the day. they got to get their kids to school. They've just had an argument with their spouse. They're worried about a promotion at work. They're worried about even keeping their jobs, and they're worried about a lot of things. And they're, they tend to be—they might be passionate about one or two things in their life. They might be passionate about abortion, or they might be passionate about environmental care, but they don't have now the space to be passionate about world hunger or racism or these other things. They've only got so much space in their hearts and heads 
Uh, so they will be a very imperfect group. And but one of the one of the things I think is a genius about evangelicalism is that, that it has these parachurch groups that are continually there to remind us of the full orb nature of discipleship. That it does include environment, it does include racism, it does include world hunger, it does include sex trafficking. And I would hope uh, these people would, as I said, I understand if they're not, but I would hope that they would sh- have the charity and patience to work with the rest of us to help remind remind us of all the responsibilities we have for the gospel, so that in a given congregation, someone might hear the message about the importance of creation care and say, you know, I've been looking for a cause to give myself in Christ's name, and this is it. This is what I'm going to do. Uh, they might not be able to do racial justice. They might not be able to do world hunger, but they could do that. So I think that's the role that these different groups play uh, in our in our movement. Mark, I, I have to be honest, I think you sounded a tiny bit utopian in the way that you just <laughs> talked about it right there. And I hate to be the more cynical person on this particular question because I do like to think of us, again, as being in the body of Christ and all having specific ways that we feel passionate about. I think one of the huge challenges when it comes to this is that Often, for people who have various causes that they feel, they feel like the body of Christ is not just saying, yes, we've delegated to you this issue or this cause. They actually feel that there are members of the body who are obstructing oh, other definitely. members of the body oh, yeah, yeah. No from question doing that. About it. And when it comes to that type of thing, I, I, I think that is where often I see the most anger, frustration, and disillusionment. Yeah, but you'll notice the way they talk about the obstruction is... So the way people generally dismiss someone who comes in with an agenda is to be the first first reaction to say the problem is not as bad as you think it is. So if an environmental uh, creation care person comes in and wants to talk about global warming, the first reaction of people who are resistant to that is to say global warming isn't as big a problem as you imagine. If a person who's interested in racial justice comes in, they're most likely to say, you know, I think we've solved quite a few racial problems. I don't think it's as big a problem as you think they are. So the the advocate of the group of that view sees that as, and may and it may very well be obstructionist, feels it's obstructionist because they can't even make headway now. Mm-hmm. They're not just saying, bless you for your ministry. They're saying, you're not even seeing the world the way I see it, and you're refusing to see the world. Get back to our very first question of the, mm-hmm. of the conversation. So I think the whole notion of when people are being obstructionist, that's a point that needs to be thought about a little more deeply as well. So if, in fact, we really do feel they're obstructionist, and we've just come to that conclusion, they said there, it's, 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 might be one of those situations where you shake the dust off your feet and walk away. I don't know. It just seems to me that's a that is one reasonable response a faithful Christian could make. Wow. <laughs> I'm a little surprised to hear you say that, but that's also very interesting. I do think again with regards to when we talk well, about let race. Me, let me back up and say though, if you're really convinced it's obstructionist, but if it's if it's merely human defensiveness at not wanting to listen to something, it seems to me that that requires a different pastoral response. Just to keep using your example of creation care, though, I think that some people who advocate for more more creation care policies and believe that climate change is real may not even think that necessarily there's someone screaming at them all the time. They just look at poll numbers and they see the number of evangelical Christians who don't believe in climate change. And then the frustration comes out of that. And and then the people that the candidates they support and what their stances are on that type of issue. I will say that I, to me, race is still a little bit different than some of these other causes in that I think it directly affects how we relate to each other in a church context and the degree that people feel comfortable being in, being able to fellowship with other people. Certainly there are many different reasons why our churches are segregated 
And I think one of them has to do with the, the extent to which people feel like they are truly being welcomed into a space and being taken seriously when they speak about something and not having what you're talking about, this thing of it's not actually a problem or it's not, you know, we've solved this so this many years ago. And so to the extent that I do think that there always has to be more work to be done to make sure that we are making people at least feel like they can show up being who God has made them to be um, and not trying to not trying to get into a place off the bat where they feel on edge and uncomfortable. I'm all for the place of a church being where we can talk about ideas and disagree with each other on ideas. But a church should also be a place where people feel, again, like they can come home and be, you know, find a place of refuge. Mark, you are currently exploring evangelicalism in a series of essays for our website. Yeah, so uh, this last question gets at some of those issues. I'm writing it because I think the phenomenon we call evangelicalism actually has a deep history, a long history, and a fundamentally a good and sound and blessed history. Now, it also has, like any movement of God in the history of the Church, it has some deep and terrible flaws that need to be addressed. But it's not something that's go- that is going away anytime soon, this notion that the Scriptures are our highest authority, that we're in love with Jesus, that we want to share the good news of the Gospel in word and deed, that we have this fervent personal faith, personal relationship with Jesus that drives us. These and their other characteristics of it has been a part of the Church's life in various times and places under various names. Some people call it Augustinian piety, some call it Puritanism, some call it pietism, and it's expressed itself in these various ways. And I basically want to write this series to say, this is our heritage, this is what it looks like classically, these are all the variety of people in our world today who own up to it, and it's pretty it's pretty impressive. It's got all these flaws, too, that we need to address and look into. Uh, But it also means that even though we can look at each other and say, yeah, we kind of share a common spiritual experience of Christ and God and passion for mission in the world, it doesn't mean we have to actually end up liking each other, but it does mean we need to respect and love one another. So there might be times we come together with evangelicals of various stripes and various cultures for the sake of celebration, for the sake of mission. But it also might mean that we also have to go back to our little subgroups because they energize us to do the thing we're called to do. So that's a really broad, sweeping thing to talk about, uh, to summarize it. But it'll be something I'll unfold in more specifics in the coming, actually in the coming months. It's going to take a few months of every week, every other week, writing something on this. So the first one was on an introduction. The second one is on how we're Jesus-y people. The third one's going to be on what do we, what is it we mean when we say Jesus is Savior, etc. We'll go down the line. Okay, I'm looking up the name of the... Uh, I think it's Evangelical Distinctives in the 21st Century, or Evangelical Distinctives, something like that. Okay. All right. So thank you, everyone, who asked us all those challenging and deep questions. You can give us more feedback all the time on how we answered that. <laughs> exactly. This never ends. This could be a en- never-ending circle. All right. We had a theological question from Pepsman. Pepsman asked, was Eunice, the mother of Timothy, a single parent, or was her husband living in Acts and Second Timothy? Mark, you're, you know, you're a theologian, right? Yeah. You can, you can answer this question. Well, the, what, what we know about Eunice— is everything we know about Eunice is in that simple verse that this uh, questioner is asking about. We know nothing else about her, and anything else has been hidden from us. We don't know if she's single, divorced, separated, a widow. We don't even know if she was a good mother or bad mother, or what her traits were, or anything about her. 
really, other than she was a mother of Timothy who, who raised him in the faith, which is a good thing. And uh, it's only natural in an age in which we care deeply about personal relationships and getting to know people at a deeper level that we often come to Scripture wondering more, we want more details about this person's life. And Scripture is often frustratingly silent about it, as if it's saying, you know, that's, in this case, not that important. Uh, what is important is that Eunice raised Timothy as a Christian, and there is something for us to learn from that, to appreciate, and to praise her for. And even the fact that she was able to do that. Christianity wasn't that old Yeah, at exactly. that time. right. Okay, now we can talk more about personal questions that people have asked us. J.R.R. 559, and if there's a Lord of the Rings reference there, I did not get it, so I'm sorry. Wants to know about appropriate personal background. Okay, Mark. What well, I think it's come up quite background. a bit. Yeah, what can I say? Well, I was born on August 24th, 1952 at St. Francis Hospital in San Francisco, California. Mark, could... we weren't born that far away from each other then. Is that right? Yeah, I was born in Hayward. There you go. What, 30 miles away? Okay. Uh, but I was thinking about what would be the one item that I should mention here that would help uh, listeners understand who I am and where I'm coming from. Uh, I'm guessing the the careful listener will have already figured this out, that I was a pastor for 10 years, and that has deeply shaped how I do journalism. I went to Fuller Theological Seminary, and then I took my first call in Mexico City. I was the associate pastor of an English-speaking church. It was full of, uh, it was attended by um, multinational businessmen and their families, by embassy officials, by a few missionaries, and maybe 20% of the congregation was Mexican nationals. It tended to be a fairly wealthy church, and as you can tell by the client clientele, the congregation. The VIPs. People, yeah, they were people uh, of some some means or power. Uh, what I discovered about these people was that they, as my mother used to say, they put their pants on one leg at a time, and that they were deeply aware of their responsibilities as Christians in these capacities, either as the economic attache to the embassy or the CEO or manager of like General Mills or Pepsi or Coca-Cola or Ford, and their feeling of wanting to act in in ways that were Christian, moral, and upright, and the some of the tensions they experienced in that. So it was a good chance to meet people of that Then that, that world. Mark learned that he could challenge anyone on exactly. anything without Actually, fear. Actually, one of the most uh, remarkable moments for me is I came... Uh, a typical young seminarian, radical, pretty li pretty liberal in my politics, and I remember my first sermon. I preached on our our need to be concerned for the poor, and I was I knew I was addressing a wealthy and powerful congregation. So apparently, I hemmed and hawed or beat around the bush and tried to do it in such a way that I didn't offend anyone. And the general manager of who did he work for? It was either Pepsi Cola or um, some big American firm came up to me and just said, hey, Mark, here's the deal. God has called you to be our preacher, and you need to tell us what you think the Word of God is is in any given sermon, and you just need to tell us straight. We're big boys and girls here. We're in positions of authority. We've learned to take and hear criticism of what, how we live, the decisions we make, and we'll pray about what you say, and we'll discern whether, in fact, God is speaking through you. But your job, Mark, is to tell us what you think God is telling you to tell us. And so do not ever be afraid to do that. You can't believe how that broke stereotypes of this group and how it encouraged me as a young preacher uh, to actually tell people what I thought. And there were meetings in which I did tell them where I thought, and they told me what they thought. And we were able to have some real frank conversations about what it meant. If you ever get a job working for Mark, know that he still values being told. Frank conversation, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But the overall notion that we are dealing, as journalists, especially at Christianity Today, are dealing with readers who most li most likely attend churches, and they have spiritual lives in which they are trying to 
discern the will of Jesus and trying desperately to do the will of Jesus, uh, that they go through periods of doubt and periods of euphoria. As Morgan has said, I tend to think of many issues from the perspective of that person and their responsibility to Christ rather than in terms of institutions. And so you'll, you'll, you'll pick up in my conversations a, I hope, uh, an understanding of people at that level, a more pastoral concern. That brings with it a, some weaknesses sometimes, but uh, it's just who I am. There you go. That's, that's some background that shapes who I am, whether I like it or not. All right. I think I have also mentioned this on the podcast before, but I was homeschooled from the time that I was in kindergarten until eighth grade. And then I went to a Catholic high school after that. And I know that many people have various feelings about homeschooling. I'm sure there are people who listen to this podcast that were homeschooled themselves. And I am sure that those homeschoolers who are listening to the podcast think that they're better than other homeschoolers because that's a common trait. <laughs> As a homeschooler is finding the homeschoolers oh, you can homes, feel superior to. Homeschooler supremacy. There you go. <laughs> Coming out finally. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that homeschooling was a pretty awesome experience, partially because when I arrived in high school, I, unlike many of my peers, was not jaded at all about learning. In fact, I thought learning was really awesome and wanted to learn more about everything, mostly. And when I was homeschooled, the way that my mom facilitated our learning was in a place where we could really do deep dives on particular topics or read more books. That's usually what it looked like was just read more books on things. And so I cultivated this strong love for reading and for learning and figuring out what was going on in the world. Also, people really love to hear this fact, so I will share it. Yes, I had to wear school uniforms when I was homeschooled. So there you wow. go. Wow. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Mom and dad who listen to this podcast, it, people always ask me about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's a certain psychological sense of that. I know people who work at home, uh, they don't work in their pajamas. They get dressed up as if they're going to work because psychologically the dress tells them what role they're playing right now. It was annoying when we went out of the house because I always felt stigmatized, but I didn't really mind it in the house. And I yeah. definitely agree with dress for the part that you want to play advice. Well, I have an irrational prejudice too about uh, homeschoolers. I, the, Given the experience I've had with people who homeschool, I do think they're superior human beings. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. There you go, Mark. All right. So we have another question from Adam Apple Tech. What is the biggest challenge you face in making this podcast? Yeah, Mark, we know this uh, is a very uncomfortable experience yeah. for you. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I've, I've mentioned the fact that I'm a, I'm a person who reads. I love history. I love theology. I like to take my time in thinking about what I think and what I think other people who read CT might want to think about. And one of my favorite jobs working here was working as editor of Christian History Magazine. So my DNA is slow thinking, slow writing. And here I am, co-host of a podcast that on Monday has to come up with a topic and by Wednesday has to begin to be able to talk about it intelligently. Fortunately, our, we try to find guests who are experts in the topic, but we still have to come up to speed within a couple days to ask questions, <laughs> intelligent questions that will help elicit really good and thoughtful answers from these people. And I find that, I find that, I find that I think our podcast is really important for, for someone to be doing that sort of thing, I just find it really challenging and some weeks, frankly, uncomfortable at how quickly we have to respond to huge, big issues that are really complex. Yeah, that's honest. Mine is less ideological than Mark's. Mine is I work on the podcast after I work on the podcast while we are going to publish it. I have to find a quote that accurately teases 
the podcast and kind of gets people excited about what we talked about on the issue. And we have guests who speak in sound bites and we have guests who speak in many paragraphs and interrupt themselves all of the time. So sometimes it is very challenging to listen to the podcast. I will say that because I'm going to be listening to it many times, I've completely broken myself of that flinching that some people do when they listen to their own voice. I do not react anymore. Ah. Which is helpful. Good. I was cowering every time. Yeah. yeah. I don't even, uh, yeah, that's, uh, don't, this is a secret. I don't listen to any of the podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) I trust Morgan to do her work. Well, we also Uh, recorded it. We, we, you know. Yeah, but a lot of people uh, listen to their own sermons or whatever to critique and to get better. I just find if I listen to myself and I think I sound really good, I'm just puffed up with pride. And if I listen to myself and I sound like an idiot, I'm just in despair. I just find it does me no good. Just sin. So I just trust other people. (laughs) All right, here are two questions for me. One from She'll Be Your Hero. Morgan, do you have any other secret talents you want to tell us about? Okay, so She'll Be Your Hero had also commented above that that they liked hearing about my circus lessons. So I will give a circus update if people want to hear about that. (laughs) I am currently choreographing a new routine for Lyra. Lyra is an aerial hoop. And I've had two classes so far, and hopefully I'm going to perform this teen routine in February. So I'm excited about that. I don't know, a secret talent, I like hosting dinner parties. I don't think that's a secret talent. Lots of people have that talent, but I really love hospitality. I guess my secret talent, but it's all. this is definitely not a secret. I'm allegedly good at making friends with everybody. <laughs> that is not a secret, and that is a fact. <laughs> <laughs> so I. So I if just there's regret. any readers out, listeners out there who don't think that's a fact, I want to have a conversation with you to try to convince you of the truth of the matter. It is not fake news that Morgan is great at human relationships. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> you know, I even wanted to do this podcast with you. <laughs> exactly. So- <laughs> that shows you the breadth of her love for humankind. All right. This is a very appropriate way to serve up this next question from Durant6. Morgan, why do you got to hate the Dodgers so much? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think I talk about baseball a ton on the podcast, but I do use Twitter a lot to, you know, convey the full extent of my emotions on baseball. And yes, one of those emotions is hatred towards the Dodgers. I will say that there have been times in my life where I've felt less hatred towards the Dodgers and that some of that was not that long ago. And then I turned on the Bay Area's sports talk radio and they were screaming at anyone who had sympathy for the Dodgers. They were like, how could you sell out like that? We're from the Bay. They're like, the Dodgers hate the Giants. The Dodger fans hate the Giants. Los Angeles, you know, Los Angelinos are, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I kind of got riled up. I kind of allowed that. I was like, you know, I just need to hear it. I need I need this <laughs> hatred back. You can't be a true fan of your team unless you hate the arch rival. Yeah, Durant's uh, apparently is just culturally unaware of people who have been born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. Right. It's just part of the DNA. You just can't root for the Dodgers. Learning about your culture is also about what your culture hates and exactly. also hating it, too. So, <laughs> it's definitely giant supremacy. That's right what we're on, talking Mark. About. All right. Nate Dog, 2007. This is our last question, by the way. What new music have you enjoyed this year? Okay, Mark is pulling up his Apple music list, I'm sure, to read us all the names. I got to be honest with everybody, I don't even remember the names of half the people that I listen to because I listen to Spotify Discover a lot, which every week puts together a playlist for you of new music. And it's usually 30 new artists, and I do not remember the 30 new people. But I did write down some music for this. So I've been listening to this DJ named Kashmir and that's like EDM music. I listened to this other guy the other night whose name is Peter Bradley Adams which is more acoustic guitar stuff. And there's a new movie that just came out that stars Idris Elba. 
And the soundtrack to that is Mountains Between Us. And I really like that music. So I don't know. Those are three songs that I enjoy. All right. Sure. Mark? I'm going through a phase where I'm trying to uh, rediscover my youth. So I've been downloading album after album of 60s and 70s hits. So at the top of my playlist right now are Ray Orbison, Simon and Garfunkel, Elvis Presley, Sonny and Cher, The Beach Boys, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Cat Stevens, etc., so who do you like even better than when in the, when you listen to them in the 60s and 70s? Who do you think has really held up well? I really think the Beatles have held up amazingly well. I'm just, the thing that stuns me about their music, as opposed to a lot of contemporary artists that I listen to when I, when I do that, is the variety of musical genres they tried to engage. And that's what I find uh, when I do listen to someone today whose music I, I start to like, the more they can have have a variety of musical styles. Uh, I think Regina Spector or Regina Spector, however you pronounce that. I don't know how to pronounce it. Yes, she's very She's very eclectic in her musical taste, and I love it. Now, I'm going to get lots of emails about this, so I know that I'm not a proper, insane human being not to like you two, but I just listen to one song, and it sounds just musically like the next song to me. I just, I find it, okay, I'll say it in front of God and everybody, I find it musically boring. All right, so I'll get lots of emails about how I should love you too, but... No. Okay? No. Nope. That's just the way okay. it is, friends. That's a weakness. I understand that. <laughs> I'm growing in grace. You can chat with But Bono I do like uh, artists who... So I, 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 I can really get into uh, someone like... Um, oh, what's the guy that... He write, he does um, a Ben Harper kind of, or a... Uh, a, a uh, his, no, it starts with James or Jim or... Come on, come on. Let's see here on my list. I can get into a person... Uh, the point is, I can get into a person for one album or for a few songs, but I get bored with them if they can't. Another group another uh, group that does that extremely well is Simon and Garfunkel. They really experimented with different things as they grew and changed. And uh, I'm listening to a lot of Simon Garfunkel now and their stuff from the 60s and the 70s is so amazingly relevant in terms of the social issues they're trying to address racism war uh wealth and poverty i do uh, wish that our popular music today had lyrical content that asked questions not even necessarily it has to be overly political but it went a little bit deeper than romance all right hey thank you guys to everyone who asked us questions we had a lot of fun recording this podcast happy thanksgiving to everybody and yeah that is it for us this week this podcast has been produced by myself and richard clark and gray allred thank you to them we didn't do a plug this week for christianity today magazine but you can still subscribe to the magazine at orderzd.com slash quick to listen you can also look for the deals that we will be having on black friday yeah, and be sure to look at giving. those they're great deals you don't want to miss them Miss, miss them. Just yeah, so they're going to be on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. So that's my tip. Great, great time to give gifts of CT to other people. You can always leave all your kind remarks or critical feedback on Apple Podcasts. You're just welcome there. And this podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and so forth, wherever you want to get your podcast from. We will see you all next week.